Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The more we know about disasters, the more we realize that most were preordained. COVID-19, Katrina, the current fire in California, and the deep freeze this past winter in Texas, none of them are what we would call black swan events. If this is true, and we are certain because of climate change and complexity that we are going to experience more such events, we had better become much better at disaster preparedness. If we know that these events or ones like them are coming, how can we get better at dealing with the consequences? Fire season is yet to reach its peak this year. Hurricanes are starting early and infrastructure and buildings will collapse. The business of disaster management should be one of our number one priorities, just as it has been for my guest, Dr. Samantha Montano. Samantha Montano is currently an assistant professor of emergency management at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Her research focuses on the intersection of emergency management and climate change, and she's the author of the new book, Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Samantha Montano here to the program. Samantha, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Talk about this idea that so many of the crises that we face, many that you write about in in your book, are things that could have been, if not literally predicted, at least easily imagined, and yet we never seem to be appropriately prepared. Yeah, you know, very often after major disasters, there is a a narrative that forms in mainstream media or among politicians, which states nobody could have seen this coming. It's not our fault. We weren't prepared for this. Nobody expected this to happen. In reality, we can look back at risk assessments that local emergency management agencies have put together Uh, threat analyses that FEMA has done. We can look at, you know, the work that scientists and other academics have done. And almost always you can find somebody who was warning about nearly that exact scenario. Um, And uh, so this idea that we can't predict these disasters really isn't true. And, And honestly, it's a convenient way out for politicians, elected officials, to excuse the lack of resources that they've put towards preparedness efforts in advance. And yet there's a kind of cognitive dissonance in that because those are the very people that could benefit in terms of a positive public response if we were prepared, if we did have the ability to better deal with these events. Yeah, you're right. You know, disaster researchers have been arguing for decades alongside emergency management practitioners that we need to take a more proactive approach to emergency management, to understanding our risk across the country. Traditionally, we have tended to be very reactive. We've, you know, kind of let the disaster happen, then responded to it, gone through this recovery process. In kind of the ideal world, though, we would spend a lot more time working on preparedness efforts, on hazard mitigation to actually try and prevent these disasters from happening ahead of time. Uh, When you look at the disaster research on why it is we're not doing more to mitigate our risk to prevent these disasters from happening, um, one of the major issues that comes up is that for some politicians, the calculus is that the uh, 
the kind of payoff for doing that mitigation may not really come to fruition while they're still in office. And so they, you know, the public won't really understand that the actions they've taken are at the root of, you know, preventing this future disaster that doesn't happen, right? And so it kind of puts politicians in a, a tricky position there where they don't really see how that could pay off politically. It's also not necessarily about predicting the event or preventing the event, I suppose, but knowing that these events will happen, whether they're fires or hurricanes or, or more flooding as a result of climate change. It's really how we're prepared to deal with the aftermath. Yeah, absolutely. So regardless of the exact type of hazard that occurs, whether it's a wildfire, a hurricane, a flood, a terrorist attack, we know that there is this process of recovery that we're going to have to go through, that communities will need to go through. And that recovery process actually looks relatively similar, regardless of what that actual hazard is. There are some kind of logistical differences in terms of um, the extent of rebuilding that may need to happen or, or kind of the approach you take in terms of materials. But the overarching need for a community to go through a recovery is quite similar. And because of that, we know or we see from disaster to disaster that some of the same problems are arising time after again. So we know from research and experience that coordination and communication during the actual recovery is a huge challenge and can really slow down that recovery process. A lack of local leadership can cause a huge problem in delays and recovery. A lack of financial resources coming into a community. Um, the challenges that individuals have as they try to navigate this really complicated recovery program, kind of bureaucracy, navigate through this red tape, um, trying to access funding from FEMA or for insurance companies. That all looks pretty similar from place to place across the country. One of the things that seems to be true, and I'd be interested in, in your take on it because you write about this, is the inconsistency of FEMA. They have been so good in some disasters and so horrible in others. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, when we think about not just FEMA but emergency management, generally probably the first instance, instances that come to mind are the events where there have been these huge failures. So we think of Hurricane Katrina, we think of Hurricane Maria, we think of even the response to the pandemic. Um, and what we don't think as much about, uh, for maybe obvious reasons, are the day-to-day -day emergencies that happen across the country every single day that we actually respond to really well. Um, in your local community, when there is a major traffic accident or an apartment complex burns down, there generally are resources there to meet those needs. Local first responders have trained on these kinds of scenarios. There are resources locally to come in and support. Local nonprofits will come in and help. And uh, communities kind of move through those events relatively quickly. Um, as we start looking at these larger disasters, though, these, you know, major wildfires, these major hurricanes, you there starts to become much more complexity in how we actually respond to these events. You have more 
organizations, more agencies uh, from different levels of government coming in to that community to be involved with that response and recovery in some way. And as um, I mentioned earlier, that creates an incredible challenge in terms of coordination and communication. Um, And so one of the major challenges for emergency management always, but especially looking forward to the future, is how can we be doing more to um, have more effective communication, more effective coordination so that needs can be met in communities more effectively and more justly? In some ways, more emergencies, which we seem to be having lately in large part due to climate change, more emergencies should make us better prepared and more on our toes to deal with these things. And in fact, it seems to have the opposite effect. It depletes resources, and and we, we don't seem to learn from the last disaster. Yeah, certainly as, you know, communities are experiencing these kinds of disruptive events with greater frequency or at least, you know, more severity in some cases, uh, it's certainly the case that uh, organizations and agencies, but even individuals that are experiencing these events are gaining a tremendous amount of disaster experience. Um, I did some research in southeast Texas near Houston and surrounding areas related to flooding there. You know, they're a, a part of the country that has had these repeat floods over the past several years. And, um, you know, the volunteers that I met there had gotten used to having to respond when these flood events happened. There was kind of a a process that had emerged that they went through repeatedly of, well, it's flooding. We need to go open the shelters. We need to go knock on our neighbor's doors who we know need help evacuating. And so there was certainly a kind of a, a culture and a learning within that local community. At the same time, folks there, as in other parts of the country that have experienced repeat disasters, are tired. It's exhausting to have to go through multiple disasters in such a short period of time at that individual level, but also as a community uh, and certainly in terms of the actual organizations and agencies that are having to respond to these events again and again. What's happening on the academic level, the work that you do in in Massachusetts, the work that's done at the University of Pennsylvania, where I know there's a lot of work going on in terms of looking at disaster preparedness and its economic consequences. What's happening in the academic world in these areas? Yeah, well, what's interesting about disaster research is that there's no one discipline that studies disasters. Uh, You know, there are historians, economists, psychologists, sociologists, kind of anybody and everybody is studying disasters. And that is really great because, uh, you know, we're bringing all of these really important different theoretical perspectives to this work. Um, At the same time, it uh, can sometimes make that research a a bit disjointed um, and and difficult to access, difficult to follow. Um, I myself work within the discipline of emergency management, where we're focused on how we actually manage these events. So what you know, what we need to be doing for better coordination, communication, what we need to be doing to help communities through recovery more quickly. Some of, uh, and also on the mitigation and preparedness side as well. So some of these more uh, almost operational, a bit more applied research that we tend to be doing in emergency management. But the work that 
I do draws heavily on all of these other disciplines and uh, at times kind of synthesizes the work from all of these different fields so that we can bring it more into practice. So from my perspective, the research that I'm working on, uh, it, it does take that more applied, how can we get this research into the hands of the people who are actually doing this work on the ground as quickly as possible? Um, and also, what recommendations can we make in terms of policy, um, particularly at the federal level, uh, to try and make changes to the system as we look forward to um, increasing risk in the future? Is there a global perspective to this? Can we look around the world and see other potential best practices in other countries? Yeah, certainly disasters are something that is studied uh, across the world. Um, there are, you know, different countries take different approaches to managing disasters. Um, Japan, for example, is kind of known as having a much uh, stronger culture of preparedness um, than we do in the United States. Um, certainly there are other countries like Australia and New Zealand who have advanced emergency management systems in the way that we do in the U.S. At the same time, there are you know, pretty significant cultural differences. So we do see a, a sharing of ideas uh, across uh, countries. Um, but um, there isn't, you know, I say there's not one country who is uh, necessarily doing uh, emergency management perfectly. Talk a little bit about what we learn from past disasters. Which disasters of, of the many that you write about have we learned the most from and really been able to apply to, to events in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in terms of academic learning, I would say uh, Katrina and the levee failure in New Orleans, um, that was in the U.S. Uh, an event that led to a tremendous uh, amount of disaster research being uh, conducted. Um, and there are, you know, much of kind of what we know about um, disasters from the research comes from work that was done following Hurricane Katrina. Um, some of that has been uh, applied into practice, um, but um, actually moving those research findings into policy and into practice is a, a huge challenge, um, one that, you know, we're still working on every day. And of course, one of the things that we saw with Katrina, and it has applied to other disasters, and, and arguably as we see more as a result of climate change, given where communities are built, it will be an ongoing issue, is the whole question of, of inequality in terms of response and who suffers the most in these disasters. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that was one of the huge findings from the body of work on, on Katrina, um, which was that not everybody experienced the same impacts. Um, you can see disparity in terms of um, who actually died during Katrina, right? It tended to be people who were elderly were more likely to die in the flood. Um, but you can also see that in terms of uh, who was able to evacuate, who had access to a car, who had the money to be able to go and pay for a hotel room to stay at, um, who had a job, who they were able to take time off to evacuate, 
Um, and then you can also see how inequality shapes what the actual physical vulnerability of different communities are. Again, going back to Katrina, you have um, this difference between um, which neighborhood is flooded. You have the white affluent um, uptown neighborhood not taking on water. They're higher up as compared to the lower ninth ward, which had, you know, up to 18, 20 feet of water in some parts. Um, and so, you know, there's a, a long history that led to who was living in each of those neighborhoods. And then in the recovery as well, you can see which neighborhoods were able to recover more quickly than others. You have the whiter, wealthier Lakeview neighborhood that although they had extensive damage from the flood, were able to generally move through that recovery process more quickly as compared to um, the Black Lower Ninth Ward neighborhood where there are still people who were unable to get through that recovery process and still haven't rebuilt today. Given that we know this, given that, that oftentimes it is lower income neighborhoods, places like the Ninth Ward, that will suffer the most damage, particularly in floods and, and other natural disasters as well. Is there something that we should be doing that we're not doing, either from a practical perspective or a policy perspective, with regard to planning for, the, for these disasters, knowing that certain neighborhoods, certain communities will suffer more? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we're thinking about planning efforts, the first thing we need to be really cautious about is not planning as though every community will experience the disaster in the same way or that every community will have the same resources to respond. It's not enough for a, an emergency management agency to have a evacuation plan for their city. They need to really understand how people living in, in different neighborhoods will actually be able to evacuate if that order is given, right? There needs to be a plan in place for uh, assistance through, you know, public evacuations. Um, and, you know, these other uh, kind of elements of evacuation programs put in place ahead of time to actually meet the needs of each community. Um, in addition to that, we also need to see much more inclusion of local community members in planning efforts. Uh, traditionally in emergency management, planning efforts have been done by emergency managers, by elected officials, and the profession of emergency management is uh, very rarely reflective of the local community. Uh, historically, it's tended to be white older men with military first responder backgrounds that work in emergency management agencies. And while they bring an important experience, they may not have a, a great understanding of what the needs of different uh, populations within their community actually are. So not only diversifying the profession of emergency management, but really making sure that local community groups, et cetera, are, are, rec are uh, participating in these community planning efforts is really vital to making sure those needs are met. What are the most difficult kinds of disasters for planners to deal with, and which are the hardest to recover? Uh, yeah, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think the obvious answer in terms of planning is any event that we haven't really imagined yet. Um, 
you know, anything can happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, like I said, at the start of our conversation, you know, almost always we have a good sense of, of what can happen, but um, we can be surprised. So planning for the unexpected is, is certainly a challenge. Um, something more tangible, though, uh, is even just thinking about how emergency uh, agent, uh, emergency management agencies had to rework their emergency management plans at the outset of the pandemic, right? Responding to a wildfire, responding to a hurricane in the middle of a pandemic um, was not necessarily a scenario that had been explicitly planned for in many communities, right? Um, and so uh, certainly having to rework those uh, plans for other disasters that have happened during the pandemic um, was kind of a, a unique challenge. Um, in terms of what is most difficult to recover for, uh, recover from, I would say, you know, there are certainly major catastrophic scenarios, which, uh, you know, uh, would be really difficult to recover from. But I would say kind of on, on a more uh, likely scenario, when we see communities that have been through multiple disasters in a short period of time, places like Lake Charles and Louisiana, um, I think those recoveries can really be um, more difficult than if you only have one event occur, right? You get stuck in this cycle where you cannot get through recovery before the next disaster happens. Um, you're in a place, uh, Lake Charles is, uh, you know, a city that doesn't capture a lot of national media attention. There isn't, uh, you know, this uh, groundswell of support going into their community a year, two years after uh, disasters have happened there in the way that we saw in New Orleans post-Katrina. So I, I actually think uh, those disasters that are happening repeatedly in kind of smaller cities, uh, small towns across the country can be some of the most difficult to actually recover from. How do disaster planners think about people versus property in terms of, of how they mitigate and, and triage a disaster? Um, yeah, you know, I, both uh, are important as uh, emergency planning efforts are conducted. Um, you know, ideally, uh, we are placing the most importance and the priority on saving lives. Um, but there is uh, an extensive amount of work that goes into planning for the protection of property as well. Um, really, this kind of goes back to this issue of mitigation and really um, wanting to, or to, you know, to have this reorientation in the field of really focusing on hazard mitigation. Um, there's a statistic that it gets thrown around a lot in the emergency management world, which is for every dollar we spend on hazard mitigation, the federal government saves six dollars in response and recovery efforts. The part of that statistic that um, kind of gets gets left out of that economic argument are the lives that are saved and the you know the the mental health toll that is saved um, by preventing these disasters ahead of time. Talk about the mental health aspect and how much of the work of FEMA and other planning agencies goes into thinking about dealing with the aftermath, the mental health aftermath of these disasters. 
Yeah, you know, that was another, I think, important lesson following Hurricane Katrina and one that was studied pretty uh, extensively after Katrina um, is this mental health component. Um, You know, we tend to think about the trauma of actually going through the event, um, but from looking at the research, we actually see that post-disaster in that recovery time period because of how long that process can drag out, because of how difficult it is, how much disruption in the long term there is for people. We see, um, we at times we see increases in suicide rates. We see increases uh, of medical issues related to increased stress. We see an increase in domestic violence. Um, so again, kind of these rippling repercussions, not only from the actual response to the disaster itself, but into the recovery. Um, We've also seen in the wake of Katrina that there is a a greater emphasis on mental health from formal first responder agencies, from FEMA, from the Red Cross even, Um, and it's definitely a kind of a growing component, I would say, of emergency management. And finally, is there a sense in the disaster preparedness community, the people that you interact with, your colleagues, that given climate change right now, things are going to get so much worse. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you you know, when you talk to emergency managers across the country, they are on the front lines of of these climate-related disasters that are happening. You know, they're seeing it, whether it's sea level rise on the East Coast or changes in in hurricanes along the Gulf Coast or river flooding in, in the Midwest or wildfires and drought out west, right? There's no part of the country that is not being affected by these disasters and emergency managers as well people in their communities that are supposed to be uh, dealing with these disasters are, are, you know, don't have any illusions about what is happening. Um, Sometimes I I think they're in a difficult political situation uh, in, in some parts of the country as they try to explain how this risk is changing over time, but um, certainly as people on the front lines, uh, there's no illusion as to what's happening. Dr. Samantha Montano, her book is Disasterology, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. Samantha, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.